Hello and welcome to a new retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial, hosted in association with the investment magazine, Professional Planner, and our media and event partner, the Financial Planning Association of Australia. My name is Alex Promos and I'm the head of institutional content and investment magazine. Along with my colleagues, Lawrence Parker-Brown and Matthew Smith, we spent the past five months curating content focused on the most pertinent issues in retirement for both institutional and retail fiduciaries. Since Paul Keating first steered the superannuation guarantee into law in 1992, Australia has been recognised for its accumulation or defined contribution system. However, when it comes to meeting the needs of retirees, such as delivering advice, determining an appropriate investment strategy and navigating a dignified retirement, Australia has a lot to learn. This podcast series offers exclusive access to conversations with thought leaders in the retirement sector as they discuss ways to improve the system. I hope you enjoy the podcast series. everyone to the retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Promos, head of institutional content at Investment Magazine. I'm joined today by Veronica Klaus, the head of investment consulting at Lonsec. Uh, Veronica, welcome. Uh, thank you. Great to be here, Alex. Well, it's an amazing time in markets. Um, you know, you being a research uh, uh, expert in retirement research, I just wondering if you could probably give a bit of a backstory to um, uh, your work at, at Lonsec and, and what specifically you've been working on. Sure, happy to. So um, obviously at, at Lonsec we've had an investment consulting um, division for a number of years, sort of close to, to 15 or so years where we've worked with clients in, in building tailored solutions, um, whether it be building portfolios, assisting them with, with APL work, um, sitting on investment committees, all those types of things. Now, about six or so years ago, seven years ago, we saw that there was a real need for independent advice and, and education material around retirement solutions. Um, you know, if you think then a lot of people were sort of just getting what was traditionally an accumulation portfolio, adding in a few yield funds or, or higher yielding stocks and and sort of calling that a, a retirement strategy. And, and we realised and recognised that there was a lot of, assistance that was needed in, in understanding, um, you know, how you built out that, that solution, what type of things you needed to focus on, what were the risks that, that were magnified in, in, in retirement. So we've spent, you know, as I said, the last sort of six or seven years really focused on, on working with, with planners and dealer groups and, and the like on how they can build out their retirement strategy and uh, what they need to think about. Um, how you construct portfolios for, for for these types of clients. I guess one of the interesting things you, you raise there is sort of the risks that need to sit inside a retirement sort of offering. You know, we're obviously you know, globally going through a lot of challenges, both economically and, and socially and with a health uh, context as well. I guess in the lead up to this particular moment, there was a huge amount of pressure on funds and uh, even even just members sort of wanting or sort of unknowingly taking on additional risk to try and generate returns, um, yeah, you know, whether absolutely. it's credit, whether it's infrastructure, uh, real estate, and there's really high amounts of leverage that were alongside these things. I guess, you know, how, how are those conversations sort of played out now where, you know, for a long time it was sort of seen as, seen as you could just take on these risks and um, you know, these risks were sort of just part and parcel with relative value. Uh Look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think increasingly over the last few years where we've seen, uh, you know, interest rates go to sort of zero and in, and in many cases sort of we've seen negative rates, 
and equity markets continue to, to perform so strongly with you know, very little volatility, it was very easy for uh, you know, a portfolio to be constructed with more risk in it than, than was really understood. And whether that was to try and, you know, well, usually it was to try and achieve the, the income target that the client needed, um, you know, going higher into equities, going to hybrids, going well outside the, the, um, the, the curve in so far as the quality of your bonds in your portfolio. Um, I think if we, what's happening right at the moment is that, to be honest, I don't think there's a really, until we see these end of March numbers coming through or, or the mom and dad investors see the end of March numbers coming through, I think that we'll start to get a lot more questions then. They understand that equity markets have been hit, and hit very severely. But, um, you know, at the moment, uh, we haven't seen too many questions coming through from, from our clients specifically. But, you know, but I'll just say that I think that's twofold. I, I think part of that is the fact that we have spent a lot of time over the last year and a half, especially about warning uh, our clients as to the type of risk that um, you, you build into your portfolio by trying to chase yield. So we've always had the philosophy that we would prefer to uh, try and achieve an income target rather than a specific number. And if that meant that um, we maintained or controlled the level of risk and volatility, potential volatility in our portfolio, then so be it. And that was a conversation they needed to, to have with their clients and they needed to set those expectations with their clients rather than push further down the risk curve. Mm. Um, like I said, I think that when the end of March numbers come through and then there's some really big negative numbers out of both equity and bond funds, um, you know, there'll be a lot more a lot more queries because, you know, a lot of those clients that have sort of sat back and said, okay, I want to keep very defensive, I want to keep conservative, are, are going to be hit as well. Look, I, I really, um, I feel for a lot of these people because some of them were, and when I feel for these people, I'm talking about the the members of these funds that, you know, in some cases they were told that they're in this defensive portfolio. We even had people talking about defensive equities. You know, how realistic yeah. is is this defensive tag that's been put alongside these portfolios? Again, it's 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 about you need to define things very, very clearly. And um, you know, you're absolutely right. We've seen we've got defensive equities, there's defensive alts, there's there's so many different things, but it's the end of the at the end of the day, it's where do you categorize them? And, and, you know, we've always had included defensive equities in our portfolios, but they are still within our equity portfolio. They're there to play a role. They're there to try and reduce the volatility of the equity component of the portfolio. They're, they're not a proxy for fixed income when fixed income, when yields are at zero. Um, you know, we've never put hybrids in fixed income portfolios because, again, they've got equity-like attributes at certain points. So you've got to be very, very careful, you know, how you define and how you use certain asset classes. And, and the other, I think, corollary to all that is that a lot of super funds were sort of moving into the unlisted space as a way to sort of dampen volatility. Um, there's been quite a lot of debate between sort of the retail and the in industry funds on the use of unlisted um, as a willing, you know, as a way to try and generate returns and then sort of you know, subdue the volatility that's really there. What, what's your thoughts on, on that space? Yeah, this is going to be a fascinating one, I think, over the next few months. And, and I've got to say, it brings back some very awful memories post-GFC. Um, you know, I, I can completely understand the validity of having um, illiquids in a superannuation fund. 
you know, um, especially with a large member base with a relatively, um, you know, strong inflows and young member base, et cetera. But you always need to, when you're building out that portfolio, you always need to be very conscious of worst case scenarios. And what happens if I get a, you know, a, a massive number of, of, of members moving from, you know, balance to, to cash or whatever it may be. Um, now, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see which super funds have done that analysis well and have therefore been able to, you know, have had a, a cap on their illiquid assets to ensure that they've been able to manage uh, that, those scenarios. Um, and there's going to be some that haven't. Look, albeit, you know, we're also in a, in a probably a, a scenario that no one ever dreamed that it would be the younger population, those in the hospitality um, industry especially, that are all losing their jobs and potentially maybe needing to access their super. And these were the super funds that were sort of, sort of um, at the outset saying, if we look at our member base, they're young, they're working, we're in net inflow, et cetera. Um, and all of a sudden, their, their whole member base um, has has really, you know, has suffered like no one would have expected. So we are going through some incredible times, but I really do hope that this actually does bring to light how important it is to always ensure that you align your liquidity requirements with your portfolios. That, that, that's a really uh, interesting piece because there is such a difference between the typical cash balance, a lot of these industry funds, where they've been able to historically just rely on the SG that just you know continues providing you know cash flow to to at least the nine or ten largest funds, yeah. but but I guess that's you now now been significantly disrupted by the fact yeah. that a lot of a lot of people now are unemployed and and that SG balance really is not going to help them. Yeah. Um, uh, absolutely, it's it's almost like. Um, you know, it isn't just one thing that's gone wrong with equity markets, you know, collapsing and liquidity drying out in, in the financial markets, but having, you know, such a significant number of members that are now facing unemployment and needing access to their super, it, it is almost like a sort of a, it really is a double whammy. And uh, it'll be, I think, really interesting to see the way they, uh, they manage through this period. I, the interesting thing when you talk about cash is that if you look at a lot of the self-managed super funds, they always, everyone said they had too much cash. Um, you know, is there, is there sort of a minimum level of cash that funds need to still have and, and to really think about the optionality that comes with having cash? Has, has that been yeah. sort of discounted for too long? Um, probably. Um, look, and I don't think there's some magical number. I think it really comes down to doing hard work and the analytics. And, you know, we've now in the past, you know, what, 13 years, had two massive what was could be deemed as black swan events that have impacted liquidity and markets incredibly. And unless when you do your, your analysis, you take those types of events into account. So as I said, so that you can ensure that you can, you, you've got the liquidity to be able to manage through those types of scenarios, then you're not doing the right thing. But I can't tell you whether that's going to be a 5% or it's a 10 or 15%. Um, it really does depend on the fund, uh, each each individual fund. The the challenge here, obviously, is now in terms of advice, really, and advice on scale, yeah. because you know you can you can have your default fund that you're invested in, but you know the the broader advice as to what proponent or what proportion of your super 
you know, is in all all invested versus what you have cash and what you have off, out, you know, outside of your traditional super becomes even more important. I guess, yeah. for, you know, from your perspective, you know, how, how can we, you know, improve the level of advice and particularly independent advice, um, you know, at this at this current juncture? That's a, that's a really interesting question. And, and look, I think we've gone, you know, We've gone a long way in in um, with sort of financial planners and and with advice and in understanding the importance of of incorporating you know industry super funds and and you know portfolio solutions outside of that. Mm-hmm. But you know where do you go? How do you improve it? It really just comes down to I think the industry just needs to work really together. You work really well together, all parts of the industry, in ensuring that there is as much information available. Uh, to assist the financial advisors as can possibly be, you know. Um, I think if we just take a, you know, look at a smaller scale of how difficult it's been for, um, you know, financial advisors to access information from a lot of the super funds, you know, all of these types of, of wars need to come down. Um, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why I know at Lonsec we've spent so much time over the last couple of years in ensuring that our particular clients and our advisors that subscribe to our research are able to access all of the work that we do through super ratings so that they've got that information. Um, you know, the quality of advice, you know, a, a significant proportion of the quality of your advice comes down to the information that you get and the transparency you get um, from, you know, funds, et cetera. So... I think we we need to go further in ensuring that uh, they are armed with all necessary sort of tools and information. I, I guess the the natural corollary to to this is there there was this whole APRA heat maps late last year that yes. really went really went out <laughs> out to town on a lot of uh, funds, and a lot of those discussions now are you know being being revisited, um, and many funds that maybe uh, you know probably looked very bad um, from a, you know, on a heat map perspective might've actually turned around and done very well because they were quite conservative. Um, mm. you know, ha- Look, the, the one thing I would say is I, I'm very wary of single, of, of any kind of analysis that is, is one dimensional in fact, mm-hmm. in, in the information that it presents in a way. Um, I think what's really important is that, you know, everything has a place, everything will provide a little bit of information but to be too reliant on on one piece. So it's, it's, you know, you should never be too reliant, for example, on just performance returns because we know how important risk and volatility is to to performance. Um, And I think if we don't also incorporate really strong due diligence and research, um, then we're also, you know, um, missing a very important, um, you know, part of, of the type of information that we need to bring to financial planners. How, uh, how, how much do you, do you feel that just general financial literacy is still a problem out there? Uh, look, I think it can always be improved. And like I said, we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to, to, to really sort of um, present our clients with as much information that we can across both, you know, industry super funds and the, and the wholesale landscape. Um, but there's definitely far more we can do. And, and like I said, I think the most important thing is to ensure that it it is across all different types of information and doesn't focus on one thing. I think in the past we've been too focused on either just either performance or fees. Mm. 
without looking at, at the client's portfolio more holistically. Uh, and, it's, and it's caused real problems. Does, does this potentially you know, raise the question of a lot of these passive strategies that were being employed for a long period of time? Uh, yes. Um, I think, you know, passive has a place. There is absolutely no doubt that there is a, a place in, in certain portfolios for a passive type of investment. Um, and I think that in saying that as well, there's a lot of managers that claim to be active and have been earning active fees that will, without a doubt, um, you know, be shown up during this period as well. So it goes just as much to the active side as well that, that there will be issues coming out of this. But I think what's really important is let's take a step back and talk about or think about why did you choose a passive um, investment? Is it because you believe that markets are efficient or is it because you were looking for something cheap? Now, if you believe fundamentally, fundamentally believe that markets are efficient, then there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't um, implement your, your philosophy via a passive solution. If you're doing it because it's cheap, then you will be caught out. Okay? So I think we need to be very, we need to go back to basics and start to really focus on what's my investment philosophy? What do I believe in? What, do, what type of outcome do I want for my clients-members? And how do I believe? What framework do I want to build to ensure that I'm able to deliver that philosophy to my clients and members? And we need, every single person needs to go out there and rethink about whether they've got the appropriate um, framework in place to deliver on that philosophy or whether now's the time to rethink it or to put one in place. The other area to potentially rethink, I think, is correlation. Um, And there's been a lot of reliance on historical correlations between asset classes. But in this current environment, we've seen many assets, risk assets, really all selling off at the same time. And I think that's that's another potential to really rethink how people construct their portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, we saw this in GFC. We saw correlations go to go to one, and and everyone started to, to you know, um, talk about the same thing. Then we have sort of a decade of bull mark of you know strong equity markets, and and it all falls away. Um, you know, it's it is really difficult though because there will be environments where correlations break down. Okay, they, they that that will happen, and sometimes there's you you know it's very difficult to protect a portfolio all the time, at every point. Um, what's important, though, is that, uh, is that you've got enough diversification throughout your portfolio to try and capture as many different possibilities and events as possible. If you take there's a great example of diversified alternatives, which we've been big um, users of over the, last, over the last few years, we've had a lot of our clients that were always very, very upset with the performance of some of these diversified alts because in comparison to equities, they underperformed quite significantly. Um, and we used to have to always go back to what was the reason why we put it in there? What were we trying to achieve? It was all around diversification and correlation. And I think what you're seeing now is all of a sudden these strategies, when markets are down 35%, some of these strategies are flat or down maybe only 1%. So, you know, they're now doing what they were meant to do. And I think I think it's really important when you're talking about, um, you know, correlations and 
and you know, to go back to again what, what I spoke about earlier around portfolio construction and around what your philosophy is and what the framework that's in place that you're trying to achieve. And you know, when you have situations like this, you have to always go back to, to why did I put it in my portfolio? What role was it meant to play? And and really focus on that. But like I said, there will be there will be times when correlations break down. And um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do it, but at, at those points in time. But just really, just go back to our philosophy, go back to our framework, ensure that we've got everything in place, and ensure that we understand what role every strategy or every fund we've got in our portfolio is there to play. Is there is there an issue with the potential benchmarks that were being used, or that they sort of were just discounted? You know, if you look at the industry super funds, they they communicate sort of CPI plus two, three, four, five as a number, but then they were de- you know, delivering double digit returns over the last few years, and so that became almost a, a given. Is that part of the problem? I think benchmarking across the board's been really difficult for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I'd actually say that that there's been a lot of strategies that have had, you know, some of the more absolute return type strategies with a CPI plus five that haven't been able to achieve their objectives. And what we're seeing is a general lowering of everybody's objectives. Um, so I, I think benchmarking is really tough. Um, but again, you've, I would question why the benchmark is driving um, the, 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 the strategy and the, and the, uh, the solution. Um, you know, it has to be a guide. I think the more pressure we put on groups to to be able to consistently, you know, year in, year out, achieve or, or a benchmark that quite often is over a business cycle or a five or seven year period or, what, or whatever it may be, um, then we're moving the whole focus around, you know, investment strategy to performance and performance only. Let's take the conversation back to to sort of the retirement space, given that this is you know part of the retirement conference, uh, and move specifically to decumulation. You know, it's a real yeah. challenge now when you think about decumulation and how to construct a portfolio for decumulation. I guess what? Let's hear your your thoughts on on that process. Sorry, could you just re- repeat that question? My apologies. Uh, I guess at this point in time, you know, the the issues with decumulation become quite critical now and and particularly as a lot of people are looking to rethink their retirement portfolio you know yes. in a decumulating portfolio i guess what are the key constructs or or issues that need to be considered as part of that process you know and and maybe if you could elaborate on on what parts maybe you know are delivered uh driven by income versus maybe even potential for capital growth yeah yeah absolutely so at lonsec we we focus on defining our portfolios based on a philosophy of achieving a certain a certain income target, but with also acknowledging that we also have an objective to generate capital growth over the long term. So, you know, if, if we think about um, the way we construct them, we're also very focused on ensuring that we've constructed portfolios to provide advisors flexibility in terms of meeting their retiree income and, and objectives and capital objectives as well. Because it's fine to build one solution, but retirement more than any other is when each individual client has a very different need and objective. So having that flexibility is critical. Um, you know, we can all say that, yes, predominantly everyone's primary objective is, is income, um, but it's not their only objective. 
You know, for many, it's all about ensuring that they've got a little bit more money so that they can, you know, that they can do the things they haven't, you know, haven't been able to do previously. For others, it's about, you know, ensuring that there's enough capital growth so they can leave something to their kids. There's a whole raft of other objectives that sometimes actually are counterintuitive to, to achieving your income targets. So it's important that you create a, a solution that's flexible for, for financial advisors when they're having their conversation with clients. Um, for us, we tend to, to, to build it in the context of, um, of having key building blocks for, for our portfolios. And those key building blocks are what is going to provide your generation, what strategies are going to provide capital growth, and then what strategies are going to assist with risk control. And risk control is a really, really important one because we touched on it a little bit earlier. But when you're in retirement, there are a lot of risks that are, are magnified as you move through to accumulation. So, you know, you often hear people talking about sequencing risk. Sequencing risk, yeah, more than ever now is, is, is a critical issue for, for those that are nearing retirement or in retirement. Um, so what are the types of strategies you need to think about having in your portfolio that can try and lessen the impact or assist in managing for sequencing risk. Um, inflation risk, interest rate risk, longevity risk, these are all really, really important things that we need to focus on and ensure that even if we can't completely eradicate these risks from our portfolios, that we've at least got solutions in there that can help manage them. So we're, we're very, very mindful of, in, of ensuring that that is a, a really key part of our portfolios. When we look at yield as well, it's not just about going out there and trying to generate yield wherever we can do it. We're doing it in the context of what type of risk a client is comfortable in, in having exposure to. And, and so, you know, if, if you've got a client that very much is, is at the lower risk, sort of the more conservative spectrum, then you can, you can only sort of, you can get as much yield as you can from your more defensive fixed income type strategies. Um, you know, uh, you've got to be very careful how much equity risk you bring into those portfolios, even if it's through some of these, you know, high yielding fixed income strategies. So typically we won't go down that avenue for the more conservative investors. Um, and as I said earlier, capital growth is also incredibly important. It's, it's about ensuring that you've got um, growth assets in your portfolio so that you can continue to grow your portfolio. Um, if you think about the fact that most Australians are still retiring underfunded, unless we have capital growth or we're able to generate capital growth in our portfolios, we will run out of money sooner rather than later. So it's another really important um, element in, in the way we, we think and construct our portfolios. Last question, and it comes back to the, the issue of being underfunded. Um, and now we've seen a situation where the government has announced that the working population can, can access their super early. I guess, keen to hear your thoughts on what does this mean for the system in Australia going forward? Do you have any views yeah. on that? Yeah, I, I actually um, heard some stats the other day and, and the type of impact it will have depending on what age you are. So obviously for those in the, that are in their sort of 20s, it's not going to have as much of an impact on retirement as someone that's in their 40s where it could be sort of 30, 40 odd thousand dollars, um, you know, uh, if not more. So without a doubt, I think we need to recognise that it will, you know, potentially have a significant impact on, on the uh you know, the amount of money that, that people are, re are retiring with. So we need to be ever more focused on ensuring that we've got a flexible yet rigorous approach to retirement solutions, number one. Number two, I think we really need to work hard 
with, you know, as a whole industry, ensuring that as many people as possible have access to advice. We know that, that those that get seek advice or, or get advice have better outcomes. So we, we need to work together as an industry to, to ensure that as many people as possible have access to that because, you know, um, getting advice isn't just about, you know, retiring with a huge pool of money that you don't know what to do with it. It's, it's more important that you get it when you're retiring with a smaller pool of money that you need to try and manage over a very, you know, over a long period of time. So um, I think it's critically important that we that we work together and, and look to how we can bring um, advice to as many people as possible, because it will be needed. All right. Thank you very much for your time today, Veronica. Thank you so much.